You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. And we are in Psalm 128. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to Psalm 128. Now this psalm, it's a focus on the family again. And do you remember Psalm 127? It ended by saying, children are a gift of the Lord, fruit of the womb. And it goes on and it was talking about the home and the pilgrim's family. Psalm 128 continues this theme. And then Psalm 129 starts a very, very different theme that we'll look at both of these tonight. But initially, just making some observations about Psalm 127 and 128, they kind of go together. I like to think, remember this pilgrim caravan that we keep talking about, this families and families heading up to Jerusalem. This was one of the songs they would sing as they attended the pilgrim feasts. And I think it's instructive for us that there are two of these psalms that are related to the family. Because we might be tempted to think that the focus is just on God, it's about his temple, it's about the sacrifices and the worship that's going to happen there. And that's all absolutely true. But I think it's good to remember that we are to carry the interests of the home and of the family to the place of communion with God. We do that with us. We bring our families with us to the house of God. We bring our families to the Lord in prayer. And this is how we influence them for lasting good. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we have two of these psalms that focus on the family. So let's look at the first four verses, Psalm 128. It says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So you have this picture. Someone who says, you shall eat, your needs are taken care of, you're provided for, wife and children. It's, it's just basically a picture of a, of a home that would have been very common in these days amongst the Israelites, but it's trying to give you the concept of a home that is blessed. And what we're looking at is the first line. That is the main reason that we have a blessed household here. It's the most foundational principle for a godly home, for a godly pilgrimage, and for a fruitful, and the word there is happy life, a fruitful and happy life, and that is that you fear the Lord. And that is a frequent command in the Bible. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, and we could multiply verses to that effect. Now, let's talk about fear of the Lord. I know we've done this times previously, but I want to focus in on it a bit here. It's not just a state of mind. It's not something we just think. We have to suddenly sort of think, yep, the Lord's powerful, I'm scared of him. That's not what we're saying here. So let's unpack it a little bit, because one of the things you'll notice in the scriptures is that the fear of the Lord is always said to come with promised blessings. And one of these blessings is, in fact, happiness. And that's maybe an unusual concept for us to think about, the fear of the Lord associated with happiness. Many people seek a happy life, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but this is the real key for a happy life that we're going to see here. Now, happy life in this sense is not indicating that you're going to live a stress-free life on this earth and nothing ever is going to bother you, and that's not what it's saying here. Remember, we just saw in the last psalm some very tough times that these pilgrims went through. We're going to see that in the next Psalm too. But it's talking about, really, when you're in that relationship with the Lord, you can take joy from that. The fear of the Lord is intimately connected with obedience to the Word of God and to actually passing on the Word of God to the next generations. This is another reason why family are mentioned here. And it is absolutely foundational to the Hebraic mindset. 
Why is that? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to just flesh this out with you a little bit here. Because the fear of the Lord is one of the things you'll always notice in the Bible. It's often mentioned with obeying the word of God and with passing on the word of God. And where does that come from? That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is probably the most foundational passage for Jewish people. It's where we get their famous confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. You remember that verse? Jesus quoted it as the most important commandment. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So uh, we won't read it all. I just want to highlight a few things, so I'll read some of it. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land. Notice the theme of fruitfulness, the theme of blessing, the theme of obedience that we see, just like we read in this psalm where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord, your God, to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, and it will be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on, you, uh, on your forehead. You notice all those themes that we've just seen are all replicated in our psalm there. The household that the psalmist is presenting is the household here that is obeying Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you go down a little more, if you, I won't read the whole thing, but you'll notice the concept of fearing the Lord is also mentioned a couple more times. Look at verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And then look at verse 20. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord you commanded? Then you shall say to your sons, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all of his house. He brought us from there in order to bring us here, to bring us in, to give us this land which he had sworn to our fathers. And it goes on, verse 24. So the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, for our survival as it is today. So he could could not really emphasize this theme of fearing the Lord, obeying the word of God, and being blessed more and more. Let's go back to the Psalms now, please. But I like that last passage where it says, when your sons ask you, this is what you're going to say to them. Why do we do this? Why are we going up to the Lord? It's no different for the pilgrims in Jesus' day, when they were gathering the family three times a year, and they were heading up to Jerusalem, to the house of Zion, when they were going through these Psalms. The sons would have asked, why are we doing this? And it's no different for us today as pilgrims. When our children ask us or people we know ask us, why do we go to church? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we worship the Lord in this way? And I believe we can equally answer, we were all slaves to sin, but the Lord loved us, sacrificed himself for us that we may be free. Just like that first generation said, we were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord loved us and he brought us out into the land flowing with milk and honey. And because of that love, we desire here to follow his commandments. And that's the same answer that we can give. So let's talk about fearing the Lord. In one sense, to fear the Lord literally means a full appreciation of his character. 
we recognise the full-orbed character of God as revealed in Scripture. Yes, a loving God. Yes, a merciful God. Yes, a forgiving God, but also a holy God, a just God, and a righteous God. We fear the Lord. It means also to have reverent awe, respect for his holiness, to give him complete reverence, to honour him as God, the great God, the glorious God, God in majesty, God in purity, God in power. It, all these two things are very much linked. That's what fearing the Lord means. It also means that it actually causes our faith to grow. You'll find this, we've actually looked at this verse in one of the Psalms that we went through already. But fearing the Lord causes believers to have better faith and to also place their trust in the Lord. When uh, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and they saw the Egyptian army coming after them, it says they feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. They feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. And then finally, I would also say there's probably a slight element where we say fear the Lord that involves recognizing that sin makes God angry. You know, he does hate sin. That is a fact that we find over and over in the scriptures. And he does say that he will judge sin. He will stand against those who arrogantly break his laws. So there is an element of that. And this is especially if you are to be caught on the wrong sides of God's justice. Now, you put all of these elements together and you get something of what the, the authors are trying to present to you when they say, fear the Lord. And this will have a practical impact on your faith. Like I said, it's not just a doctrine that we hold to, that we subscribe to, we must know all those facts. It will impact our faith. And I would say there's a real danger in the evangelical world that we look at these passages, these fear the Lord passages that we find in the Old Testament, and there's a slight tendency to say, ah, yes, but we don't operate with God like that anymore. We're under grace, not law. You ever heard that expression? Now, don't get me wrong, fully affirm that phrase. We are under grace and not law. But I would also say this, if that belief, the belief that we are under grace and not law, is making you fear the Lord less, then you've probably misunderstood the point. You see what I mean by that? because we're supposed to still understand who God is. And if the freedom and the grace that he's given us is actually making us have less reverence for the Lord, then that's backwards. And we move into the era of the Corinthians who lived licentious lives and said, it was the grace of God, we can do whatever we want. That's the danger of having that sort of belief. Yes, the grace that Jesus offered us is exceedingly great. The revelation that we have after the cross, having witnessed the cross and the resurrection, not personally, but having the New Testament that records it, we have greater revelation than the Israelites ever did. And if anything, I would say that should produce more fear of the Lord in our hearts and our lives. That the fact that we know that God, what he went through, what he would do for us, because we are no better than the Israelites, but he would still do that for us then that should increase our reverence for the Lord, increase our desire to want to be obedient to his word, to tell it to the next generations. These are just some of the fruits of fearing the Lord. A few more. If you fear the Lord and obey his commandments, you will live in a, in a way that makes you want to say no to sin. Again, we have the grace of the Lord. We know that we're never going to be perfect until we see the Lord Jesus, but we have that grace available to us but we do want to strive to live lives pleasing to the Lord. Again, we know that God delights in his commandments and he delights when his children walk in his commandments. Solomon taught that through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil in Proverbs 16.6. Think of that. Through the fear of the Lord, the man avoids 
evil. This is a healthy fear of the Lord, you see. This is an element of it that is understanding what sin is. In Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, it's quite a somber book. And then we have that one phrase in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 13, where he basically sums up his entire life's philosophy. And he simply says, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. The fear of the Lord will have a sanctifying effect on us, on God's people, in the same way that applying God's truth to our lives does. This is what it does. It purifies us. It will separate us from sin. It will mature us spiritually as we walk in obedience to his commandments, motivated by the fear of the Lord. And not only should the fear of the Lord affect us individually in our own personal walks, it should also affect our families. A household that has people in it who fear the Lord will affect other people in that household, or a whole household that fears the Lord will have an effect in this world. This is why God instructs his followers to teach their children. This is why we just read it in Deuteronomy 6. When he gives them that great declaration of faith, he says, when you're in your house, when you're sitting at your table, when you're walking around, when you're lying down, talk about these things. They are a continual topic of conversation in a household that fears the Lord. This is how you pass on the knowledge of God. And I believe this is quite instructive to us. It doesn't necessarily mean that we do that by making sure we drag our children to church once a week. Not that I'm saying that's about, you know, bring the children to church, of course. But I believe it's much more than that. The, the wording that is used seems to indicate about all the normal things that you do in your life. You sit and eat at the table. You go to sleep. You're walking around the house. That is the way I believe that we really influence uh, the next generation for the Lord. And that again puts the focus on us. We must fear the Lord first. If we don't fear the Lord, the children are never going to catch that from us. So this is one of those very challenging aspects of this. A holy and reverent fear of the Lord motivates God's people to worship him with their whole being. Psalm 22 verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Psalm 22, verse 23. You see, God has promised a reward to all those who fear him. In this psalm that we're looking at, he promises happiness, a fruitful home, a well-adjusted life, a spiritual stability, all these things. Well-being, he called it. It's a phrase we hear quite a lot about, well-being. Emotional and spiritual stability comes from fearing the Lord. Now, it will also bring comfort to you. Again, this is an unusual concept for us when we think about the word fear and fearing the Lord, bringing comfort. But these two things are often linked in the New Testament. Look at Acts 9.31. Let me read it to you. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So these are things. Now let me just deal with one area there's often objections. I said that some people look at this and they say, yeah, Old Testament, we're New Testament. Hopefully I've dealt with that. There's another verse that people often use when you're talking about fearing the Lord in a way that tries to say that you don't need to fear the Lord. It's 1 John 4, verse 18. It's a wonderful verse. It says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And you'll often see that, well, that seems to imply that if we are loved by the Lord, that we should have no fear. I've read that many times. Now, there's obviously a few problems with that. I'll deal with it very quickly. Firstly, the concept in Greek, fear, is actually a different concept in that same sense. 
But you have to read verse 17. This is one of the problems. When you take a verse out of context and try and quote it as a proof verse, it'll often make a mistake in interpretation. If you read verse 17 in 1 John, you'll see what this is talking about. It says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So this is talking about having confidence in the day of judgment. When we are filled and washed over by God's perfect love, we do not need to be afraid of the wrath of God on judgment day, is what it's basically saying. It's not saying that you don't have a holy fear and awe and reverential respect for the holy and righteous God. That is found many times in the New Testament. All this is simply saying is that part of the blessings of being a New Testament believer are that we don't fear judgment day because we know our sins have been paid for on the cross. So that, for me, settles that argument very quickly. All right, let's look at verse 5 now in Psalm 128. It says, The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And of course, for these pilgrims, the blessing of God was obviously associated with Zion. They were on their way up to to Zion, the house of the Lord. This is Jerusalem, the temple of God. And you could imagine this pilgrim caravan, they were in many ways blessed when they came to Zion. But I would also say this is something that we can think of too in our own lives. We have all been blessed from Zion. We have all been blessed from Jerusalem. Think about this. Much of the teaching ministry of Jesus that we have took place in Zion. We have it recorded for us in the New Testament. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins in Zion. He rose again defeating death for all time in Zion. The gospel was first preached in Zion. The church was born in Zion. In many ways, all of God's children, every pilgrim in every age, has been blessed out of Zion. Us two standing here in East Sussex today, we have been abundantly blessed out of Zion. And then he ends by saying, may you see your children's children, peace be upon Israel. And again, he just ends with that lovely picture. Be happy, enjoy the, having a household that fears the Lord. And for me, again, this just pictures that multi-generational family traveling, that caravan traveling up to the house of the Lord, eating together, praying together, singing these psalms that we're reading here today together, all of them doing it in obedience to his word, motivated by a fear, a healthy fear of the Lord. And he says this peace be upon you. This is shalom. This is the wholeness that you get from fearing the Lord. That is Psalm 128. And that finishes this little section that we have about home life in the Psalms, which are vitally important for us. And now we're going to look at Psalm 129. This is a very different Psalm. Now the focus of this Psalm is praising or reflecting on what the Jewish people have survived. The theme here reflects on many of the persecutions that Israel has been through in history. We will talk about some of this as we go. Let's just read, let's just read the whole, there's only eight verses, I'll read the whole psalm to you and then we'll take a little bit of time to unpack this. It says, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, let Israel now say. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plough is ploughed upon my back. They lengthen their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in two the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be like grass upon the housetops which withers before it grows up. 
with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now let's look at the first verse there. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. It's an unusual start to the book, to a psalm. In the way that you see, he just repeats this line word for word two times. And I believe he does that for emphasis. Many times Israel has been persecuted from when they were a young, youthful nation. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, the Roman Catholic Church, the kings of Europe, the Tsars of Russia, the SS, the Islamic mullahs today. And I would say we stand in the UK at a time where anti-Semitism is at its highest level since 1930s. Many times I have been persecuted from my youth up. Now I want to give you a very brief snapshot of Jewish history from 70 AD. I know I've probably done this with you in times before, but you just cannot read a verse like this without going through some of this because I find so many conversations where people are speaking about whether it be the nation of Israel today or Jewish evangelism. They can't understand how Jewish people won't, can't see that Jesus is the Messiah, that the gospel is for, for them. And particularly when Christians are giving it to them, it's like, you can see it works. If you haven't understood the history of Israel, much of what we find in the Bible, but also much of what we find elsewhere, you can't really, to be frank, I don't think you can really speak into these issues compassionately in a way that's going to get a hearing. Let me give you a very brief history from 70 AD. Before 70 AD, there are those nations and some of those things we find in the Bible. 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were scattered all over the world. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, the book of Deuteronomy, it says when they are scattered into the world, they will always have their life hanging in the balance. They will find nowhere to rest. Their life will be in danger constantly. This is the lot of Israel. 70 AD, this is the destruction of Jerusalem. One million Jews killed, 100,000 taken into slavery. 117 AD, the, the emperor Hadrian, Roman emperor, he banned all Jewish customs and all Jewish worship throughout the empire. And this led to the rebellion in 132 AD, which is known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Another 500,000 Jews killed, many taken in slavery. And Hadrian, at this point, actually ordered the expulsion of all Jews from Israel. He actually expelled Jews from Judea. 315, the Roman Emperor Constantine enacted many anti-Jewish laws. 415, the Jews were accused of ritual murder during Purim, and this led to the Purim riots, synagogue burnings. 429, the Eastern Roman Empire, Theodosius II, he ordered all funds raised by Jews to support their own schools that were just to be turned over to the treasury. This started the long trend of property confiscation from Jewish people. 529, Jewish civil rights restricted, not allowed in the Byzantine Christian Empire. The use of the Hebrew language was forbidden in worship by the Byzantine Christian Emperor. 589, the Council of Narbonne forbids Jews from reading psalms at funerals. 613, the persecution of Jews in Spain. Judaism was actually banned in that country at this time. 681, Spain ordered all Jewish writings to be burned. 807, the Islamic Caliph Rahaid ordered all Jews to wear yellow belts. 898, French King Charles, the simple. He confiscated all Jewish-owned property. 1008, Caliph al-Hakim forces Jews to wear golden calves around their necks. 1012, Jews were expelled from Mainz in Germany. 1096, the First Crusade 
12,000 Jews were killed. 1107, Jews expelled from Morocco. 1121, Jews were driven out of Belgium. 1171, Jews burned at the stake at the blood libels in France. 1181, French King Philip banished the Jews from France. 1189, Jewish pogroms started in London and Europe. 1190, all Jews in Norwich, after the blood libel started there, who were found in their houses, were burned alive and massacred. 1253, King Henry III of England introduced anti-Jewish laws. 1290, Edward I banishes Jews from England. Just recently, actually, on the next Anglican church, a synod or whatever meeting, they're having a small a small repentance ceremony for that, where they are saying sorry to the Jewish community for exiling them all those years ago. 1321, 5,000 Jews burned at the stake after being accused of poisoning wells. 1348, Jews blamed for plague, the Black Plague, throughout Europe, over 11,000 killed. 1394, a second banishment of Jews from France. 1453, the King of Poland withdraws all citizenship rights from Jews. 1478, the Spanish Inquisition is initiated. 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain expelled Jews from Spain. 200,000, this is when the legend of the wandering Jew as a harbinger of calamity started to gain popularity. 1493, they were expelled from Sicily, 37,000 of them. 1497, banished from Portugal, 20,000. 1516, the first Jewish ghetto established in Venice. 1540, Jews were banished from Prague. 1670, they were expelled from Vienna. 1768, the massacre of Jews in Poland. 1881, the start of the very vicious Russian pogroms. 1882, this was the first anti-Jewish congress held in Germany. 1891, 20,000 Jews expelled from Russia. 1915, World War I prompts the expulsion of 250,000 Jews from Russia. 1925, Adolf Hitler published Mein Kampf a book that is still a bestseller in many parts of the world today. 1935, we had the Nuremberg Laws. 1939, the Holocaust, over 6 million Jews killed, 1.5 million children. And I could continue that list on and on. And I can guarantee you, I have given you but a small snapshot of Jewish history there. Now, when the psalmist says, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, it's an understatement. It's also prophetic in that respect. Look at the next verse in the psalm, though. It says, Yet they have not prevailed against me. You see, that history that I've just gone through, there's no other people group in the entire world that has a history like that. There's just nothing like it on this earth. You can't even compare to it. And it's not really explainable in any way except understanding it through the word of God. But they say, Yet they have not prevailed against me. You see, in spite of all the attempts... Most other ancient nations that were dispersed from their land, that were persecuted, they disappeared. They got either sucked into other cultures or people were exterminated. That's pretty much what happens in this world. However, not Israel. They have not prevailed against us. Israel is still here. And I would say that is a miracle. I would say that is also a fulfillment of prophecy. You need to understand this. You see, whatever your feelings about these issues, whatever viewpoints you may hold on the modern state of Israel you are ultimately dealing with a theological subject here. And you will not get a proper understanding of it if you simply use politics as your guide to understand what is happening in the world today. You have to have spiritualized. Jeremiah 30, verse 11, the Lord promised, though I will make a full end of the nations where I have scattered you, I will not make a full end of you. You see, a lot of people like to use the argument that, yes, but the modern state of Israel is not the same as biblical Israel. And there's a tiny bit of truth in what they're saying in some ways. However, 
they're doing that as a, as a way to say basically that Israel is so horrible, look at what they're doing in the world, they, these are not the chosen people anymore, they've been rejected. It comes out of a replacement, supersessionist, replacement theology background. However, what you need to do is trace the promises of God regarding Israel. God, as we've already looked at and read, predicted that they would be scattered across the world, that there they would find no rest for their feet. I've just read to you a snapshot of Jewish history that shows you that those words were fulfilled quite literally. But then the word also promises that he would bring them back into the land. Yes, they're under a different political autonomy now. They don't, it's, you know, things have changed, but it's still the seed of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were scattered and they were regathered. So this is a theological topic. And the psalmist here says, they have not made a full end of me, or from my youth they have persecuted me, yet they have not prevailed. Turn to the book of Jeremiah, please. Let me show you this in the prophets. Jeremiah 31, verse 35 to 37, extremely important verses for anyone who holds these views that this is not an area of the word of God that needs studying. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Listen to what he's just said there. If the fixed order of the universe, the moon, the stars, and the sun, if they disappear, then the nation of Israel will, give a, will disappear. That's what he's basically saying. It's a question that's basically they, they won't disappear therefore the nation of Israel will not disappear and notice it doesn't just say individual Jewish people it says the nation of Israel the nationhood of Israel is very much in view here verse 37 thus says the Lord if the heavens above can be measured the foundations of the earth searched out below then I will also cut off the, all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done declares the Lord and his point is obviously that you cannot you know, that's not going to happen they will never be cut off this is what we see here in this psalm. The Lord is righteous. Go back to Psalm 129, verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in two the cords of the wicked. He is faithful to his promises. And ultimately, we know from the Bible, the enemies of Israel will not prevail. Let's read the back half of this psalm now. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows, with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder his sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. To hate Zion here is referring to hating God and hating his people. And the pilgrim here is praying that God would turn those who hate Zion away and that there would be no blessings upon them. Now, unfortunately, I would say there are still many people around who hate Zion, if I could say that, both the children of Abraham and I would also say the spiritual seeds of Abraham. We are, as a church, the spiritual seeds of Abraham, but make sure you don't go too far with that. We are not the spiritual seeds of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we are spiritual descendants of Abraham in that sense, but not of a, we're, not new, we're not the new Jews, we're not the new Israel. There is still a distinction there. However, you will often find that persecution in the sense of anti-Semitism goes hand in hand in many ways with persecution of born-again believing Christians. Satan hates both of the children of Abraham in that way. However, let's talk about hating Zion for a minute. Unfortunately, much of the hatred towards Israel over the years has come from the institutionalized church. This is just a sad and tragic fact of history. There is, in fact, a whole body of literature in the church that's called but it's called Against the Jews. 
This is a growing collection of literature that started as early as the second century that was just vicious against the Jewish people and led to a lot of that history that I shared with you. A lot of those councils, a lot of those empires, they were Christian empires. This is what they were doing. Let me give you a snapshot of this. Hippolytus, very famous early church father, he wrote a famous book called Expository Treaties Against the Jews, in which he called the Jewish people a perverse race, a race guilty of deicide, justly suffering for all that they had done. John Chrysostom, fourth century church father, very famous, called the Golden Mouth Preacher. He wrote a book called The Orations Against the Jews, or it was eight sermons actually, in which he called the synagogue a whorehouse, a den of thieves. He said the Jews are no better than pigs and goats in their lewd grossness, their lustful, rapacious, greedy, perfidious bandits, inveterate murderers, men possessed of the devil. And finally, he declared that God has always hated the Jews and it is incumbent on all Christians to hate the Jews. This is coming from the church. This is a leader. This, this man is still very respected in huge parts of the Eastern Church. Also, the 4th century, the very famous Council of Nicaea, convened by Constantine. We, we look back on to this event and we, we use it a lot in church history. This is where the deity of Christ was defended against the man called Arius, this sort of like ancient Jehovah's Witness style guy. The church father Athanasius stood up and he gave that great defense of the Trinity. And we look back at that and we think, yeah, that was an amazing time in church history. However, there were other things that happened at this council too. This was actually a time when many anti-Jewish laws were passed by the church, well, by Emperor Constantine, actually, who at this point was a Christian empire, supposedly. This is the main thing that you'll probably, uh, well, you may not know, but that happened at Council of Nicaea. This is where Easter began. If you may not know, Easter is, was set up for the sole purpose of separating it from Passover. You may notice that what we celebrate at Easter is exactly what happens at Passover, um, right down to the, the sharing of these traditions that we have. This was Constantine's rationale for doing that. He said, It is an unworthy thing to follow the practice of the Jews, who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. He says, Let us have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd. And therefore he moved the date of Passover and they started Easter. This continues all through church history. Let's jump to Martin Luther. Everyone knows Martin Luther. I've quoted Martin Luther before. He had that very famous event where he stood in front of the Diet of Worms and he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. It's like one of those inspiring moments of church history. A little later on in his life, 1542, he wrote a tract called On the Jews and Their Lies. He said, the Jews are a plague, a pestilence, idle and lazy, murderous, the vilest whores and rogues under the sun and devil's children. He libels them for poisoning wells and engaging in the ritual murder of Christian children. And he recommended that they should be hanged on the gallows seven times higher than other thieves. It's Martin Luther. You see, we need to... Now, obviously, when you look back at history, the flow of history is never as easy as one person's really good, one person's really evil. History just doesn't read like that, although we, we like to make it look like that. However, you can see why Europe was so ripe for such a catastrophe that we saw in the 40s, in the 30s and the 40s, because they'd have been imbibing this sort of stuff for thousands of years. It was just ingrained into the European culture at this time. However, hating Zion goes way back further than there. Turn with me to Psalm 83. It's again another very important verse. Highlight it if you're a highlighter. Psalm 83. 
This is how hating Zion is expressed in many times from the ancient enemies of Israel. Psalm 83, verses 1 to 4. It says, For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones, and they have said, Come, and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Now, if you're familiar with many of the wars that have happened in Middle Eastern history, particularly involving Israel, I could give you quotes from Egyptian leaders, Iranian leaders, that are almost verbatim, word-for-word quotes from that psalm. We will wipe Israel off the face of the earth. These are the sorts of things you hear. This is, you know, this is nothing new. This has been going on for Israel since they were born, basically. Many times from my youth, they have persecuted me. Yet Israel is still here. And just in case you think this is an Old Testament issue, an issue that deals with biblical Israel in the Old Testament times, the second coming of Jesus Christ is about this issue too. Most people don't realize that. We will be looking at this more. Zechariah 14, verse 1 to 4. Listen to this. Behold, a day is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, and the rest of the people will not be cut off. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day's battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is a passage that deals with the second coming, and it gives you the reason for the second coming is to save and rescue the nation of Israel who are being battled Uh, persecuted by the nations at this time and very interestingly houses plundered land is still an issue women attacked that's still an issue so i would say when you see anti-semitism or the modern we call it anti-zionism today and a lot of people will say there's a difference between the two technically they may be right but what i see is anti-zionism this is hating the state of israel not hating jewish people this is how a lot of people get around the issue i don't hate jews i just hate the policies of the modern state of israel Don't get me wrong, you can disagree with policies of the modern state of Israel. However, what I actually see happening is that it's really just a masquerade. Uh, It's really just a term that's covering up anti-Semitism. But when you see these things, realize you are watching a spiritual battle play out. You are watching Satan's attempt to hate the Jews. Now, we saw recently, do you remember a few months back, where we saw cars on a certain day, I won't really go into it, but they were driving through the streets of London, they had flags from their cars, and they were chanting, kill the Jews, kill the Jews, rape the Jews... This is what was going on, and they just reminds me of those verses from Zechariah. Houses plundered, Jews killed, women ravished. This is alive and well in the world today. It doesn't matter what flag they're flying. When you see these things, it's a spiritual battle, and the church's response is to pray. As we studied a few weeks back, you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You pray for peace, you pray for Messiah, you pray for truth to reign. Let me look at this a little bit further with you for just another five minutes while we do this. You see, Scripture shows us that the ongoing onslaught against Zion, against the Jewish people, is motivated by Satan. Okay, it is different. Obviously, I would say all racism, all of these things are motivated by Satan in that sense. But there is something unique about Israel. That's why we have so much about it in the Scripture. And why is this? This is a question we need to understand. Romans 9, 5 is your answer, where it says, To Israel belong the covenants. And the word belong there is continual present tense. It doesn't say their covenants were made with them in the past. It says they still, the covenants still belong to them. 
We are grafted into one of those covenants by the grace of the Lord, the new covenant, but they were still made with the house of Israel. Now, what do covenants do? This is the question. You've got to understand this to understand this whole issue. The covenants are how God mediates his blessings to the world, aren't they? We, all our blessings come from the new covenant, but there are blessings in the Abrahamic covenant and all these other things too. This is why you see such wrath, satanic wrath, directed against those who, own, who have those covenants. The desire is to destroy Israel. This is reflective of Satan's desire to break God's covenants, to break God's promises. Do you remember in Revelation 12, if you've read that book, a very unusual passage, I won't go into it now. In Revelation 12, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and a head on her crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out in labor, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Very quickly, I won't go through it, but the woman clothed with the stars, that is Israel. It's a, it's a description given in the book of Genesis. And which child came into the world through Israel? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, came into the world through Israel. And then you get this description in the same passage. Another sign appeared in heaven, the great red dragon. And his tail swept away a third of the stars and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, she might devour the child. You have this image of this great red dragon who we obviously know is, is representative of Satan always had his eye on Israel, always trying to destroy, almost stalking Israel, just waiting. Because remember, right back in Genesis, the Lord promised that from Abraham and his Lord, someone was going to come that was going to crush his head. Genesis 3.15, someone, the seed of the woman, was going to come. He knew that someone was coming who was going to defeat him. That's why he keeps trying to destroy them. We see this through the New Testament, the slaughtering of the babies when the king was coming with Herod. It's always been Satan's idea. He's just waiting now, he wasn't able to do it. He thought he'd probably won when he got Jesus on the cross. He didn't realize that was God's greatest victory being won right there. You can just see how God was not surprised by any of this. He outsmarts him on every, every front. But this is a spiritual battle, make no mistake about it. This is behind the veil, if I could say it like that, of anti-Semitism that we see playing out in the real world, that we see in biblical history, we see in modern history. This is uh, what it means, I believe, the psalmist says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. And one day they will. We know that for sure. But it's our job in many ways to make sure that that is happening because we are representative of God's kingdoms here today. Now, and it's a little crass to sort of actually plug my own work from the pulpit. Apologies for that. But like, I have actually literally written a book on this subject. And I actually use Psalm 100, this verse, may all those who hate Zion uh, be put to shame and turned back uh, as pretty much on the front cover or the second page in. It's the basis for the whole book, Understanding Replacement Theology and Anti-Semitism. And that will give you a much more in-depth look at everything we've gone through tonight. And it's actually part of a series. You can get the first book, which is all about a biblical theology of Israel. Apologies for that. I won't do that again. But that is... It is literally related to this text and everything that I've been talking about tonight in much more detail. I've actually quoted some parts of it tonight on my notes without you knowing. So there you go. Now, as we close, let's just look at this section. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. God's plan will stand. Those who hate Zion will fail. 
And we want to join with those pilgrims who are on their way up, praising the Lord for Israel's survival and the blessing of Messiah that came into the world through him. We have been blessed out of Zion just as much as they were blessed out of Zion. We have been blessed more out of Zion on this side of the cross by the blessings of the new covenant. As we go out into the world, remember, the pilgrims were supposed to tell these things to the world. This is what we do. We do this in the church and we do this through our words and through prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for, again, these texts tonight, Lord, that we've looked at these pilgrim psalms. And although they've been some heavy material here, Lord God, I pray that you would just inspire us, Lord, to understand, to search the scriptures daily, to see whether these things are so, to give us that that desire to be obedient to your commandments, Lord, to fear the Lord, to understand who you are. And we would ask, Lord, that you would reveal a deeper revelation of your character to us, We pray, Lord, that you would take this church further and deeper into the word of God, Lord, and we pray that you would make us just effective ambassadors for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Amen. to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.